0: So it's verse 20. Let's go ahead and read. Jesus continues, and he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and the wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. This is heavy, this is deep. There's a lot to it. It can kind of be scary, but one of the things that we see and now I want to make sure that we completely understand as we go through this. And one of the things that we should completely understand as we read through the book of Revelation is that those who are in Christ are safe. Those who are in Christ, we have peace. Like, we we have an ultimate fulfillment in heaven with him where there will be no fear, there will be no pain, there will be no suffering, right? And even now, we have a glimpse of that because we have the Holy Spirit in us. And so some of the stuff that we read in Revelation, some of the stuff, a part of what we're going to read today and what we have read, we are really saved from those things. And ultimately, we're not saved from you know, the suffering that we face here on earth, right? We understand that. Many of you have already faced some type of suffering here on earth from something that has happened in your life, okay? You are not uh, spared from that just because you are born again and you're, you're a believer, right? But what we are spared from is what? Anybody know? There's something that's going to happen in the end before Jesus comes back and he establishes his kingdom here on the earth with his, his church, his bride, which would be you and I. There's something that he has to do that is not for the church, that is not for his own body, that is not, again, for you and I. Anybody know what that is? He's going to pour out his wrath. He's going to pour out his wrath. Why, why don't we take that? Why aren't we going to partake of, of the wrath of God? Because we've been redeemed, right? We've been saved. And ultimately, remember, we've talked about this before, When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he received the wrath of God. Remember, he said three times before he he died, the night before, he prayed three times and he said, Lord, take this cup from me, right? Let it pass. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. The cup is a representation of the wrath of God, right? And God has to pour his wrath out. Why? Because he's a mean God? Because he hates people? Or because he's a just God? It's because he's a just God, right? When there has been a wrong, well, there needs to be a right. There needs to be a consequence. There needs to be a punishment for it, right? We want a just God. We need a—how about, let me say it like this. We need a just God. Sometimes we only want a loving God. But part of his justice is love. And part of us experiencing his love is the fact that he is a righteous and just God. So when God pours out his wrath, it's not because— you know, he's a mean God. It's his very nature because he's perfect and he's righteous and he's just. And the consequence for unrighteousness is the wrath from a perfect and righteous God. And how do we see his love? Well, he provides us an opportunity and a way out of that wrath, right? A way out of that consequence, a way out of that punishment. And how is that way out? Well, again, it was through Jesus Christ, right? Him dying on the cross, receiving the wrath of God, and raising up the next day, showing us that he's defeated the penalty of sin, which is death. But how, how does that transaction happen? How then am I free from the wrath of God if Jesus did all that? Is, is, did Jesus cover it for everyone just for the fact that he died on the cross? No. He covered it for everyone in the sense that he gives us the opportunity that it can be covered. right? But what, what do we have to do to receive that transaction of righteousness is by putting our faith in Jesus Christ right? Like, he did all the work, right? We've talked about this a lot. Jesus has done all the work. He's made the sacrifice. Now, if we just believe in him and trust in him for what he has done and who he says he is, then we are considered righteous. And so, no longer does the wrath of God need to be placed on me because God doesn't see me as a sinner. He doesn't see me as wrong as having messed up, right? He sees me as righteous as, as his son, as his perfect son. And so, there is a day, though, because many have rejected this free gift of love, this free gift of salvation. They've rejected it, which means that the righteousness is, or the the wrath is not upon Jesus on their behalf, but rather they're going to receive it on their behalf. And there's going to be a time where where God's going to have to pour that out, and we will see that happening in what we call the seven-year tribulation. You guys know this? Have you studied this before? You've heard this before? So at this point in time, and I'll kind of explain this and go through the math with you. At this point in time, we're in the, the church history, we're in the age where pretty much almost everything has transpired that Jesus has predicted, that the prophecies that we see in Scripture, where now we are literally looking for Jesus to come and, and spare his church and take his church away from that seven years of wrath. Okay? And this is what we call what? What do we call that when Jesus takes his church from the earth? Huh? The rapture. Is that word in the Bible? No. Then where do we get the word? It is. in Timothy, it means, it means to be caught up into the air. And so I don't know if you guys have ever, you know, seen the movie Left Behind or read the books Left Behind. And, you know, I, I, don't, I think I saw the movie. It kind of, like, shows everyone, like, just poofing and disappearing. It's kind of like um, what Marvel did with, uh, yeah, and everyone, he snapped and, like, half the world was gone. Yeah, I think... I think Satan was using that movie to kind of distract and confuse people for when it actually happens. They're going to think, oh, snap, there really is a Thanos, right? <laughs> but then we're going to see, listen, then we're going to see that people are going to come across the scripture. They're going to be reminded of, you know, what Christians told them and say, hey, no, like this isn't a Marvel movie. This is real life. This is what was predicted in scripture. And so how that looks, you know, like if we, you know, if our clothes vanish or if we vanish and our clothes, say, I don't know. But all I know is that we will be, we will be here one moment and the next moment we won't and we'll be caught up into the air with him. Now I want you to understand this because I was confused by this for a long time as a kid. The rapture of the church is different than Jesus's second coming. Okay. When was his first coming? When he came. When, what we're reading right now in Luke, right? Like he's on earth right now as we're reading everything he's speaking right now. He's, he's on earth. He's in Jerusalem, right? That was his first coming. Okay. Then He dies. He he comes back for a moment in his glorified body. I think it was like 40 days, I believe. And then he goes back up into heaven. We'll read about this, okay? And at that point, he says, the way that you saw me go up is the next time you see me is the same way I'm going to come down. That's his second coming. And his second coming, we as the church will be coming with him, right? And he's going to be coming not as a, a humble servant like he did the first time, but he's coming as a roaring line, I like that, but a conquering king, right, as a king, right, and here we are, we're going to come with him as he's going to establish his kingdom after the seven-year tribulation. So in that seven-year tribulation, we, the church, are spared. There's many people who don't believe this. They believe, you know, the church is going to uh, be spared midway in the tribulation, like three and a half years in. There's some believe that the church will be a part of the tribulation, Um, that they'll have to go through the seven years of it. And one one of the ways that I look at this, and there's many different scriptures that point to the simple fact that we, the church, won't be here. But one of the simple ways that I look at it is that if the tribulation is about Jesus pouring, God pouring his wrath out, right? And Jesus says in scripture, when he talks about the husband, the wife, and how the husband's supposed to treat the wife, how the wife is supposed to treat the husband, and he uses the similarities between him as the bride, or the, or the, the groom, and we at the church as, as the bride, he says to the husband to love your wife as if it was your own body. Right? And then he talks about it, some portion of it, like no one who loves his body would hurt his body. Is that right? Like, if, who would do that? No, that, doesn't, that goes against just common sense. And so the husband, me, I'm supposed to love my wife the same way that I would love myself or even better, right? So I would, I would do no harm to her. And if Christ is our groom and we are the bride, why would the groom hurt the church? He wouldn't, right? So what the, what the groom does is he takes us out of that, right, called the rapture, and saves us from that. It's a beautiful thing right? That's one simple way that I look at it. There's many different um, scriptures that point to the fact that we won't be here as the church, and that's important to understand. If we believe anything other than that, really our doctrine changes completely. It really does. So it's important that we believe that the church is spared from the wrath to come in the seven-year tribulation, and I say all this because of what we're going to read here has to do with that. So verse 20, it says, when you see, Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation is near. And so, like we talked about last week, the temple is, is going to be, you know, torn down and thrown down, that not one stone shall be left upon another. But here he's continuing to predict and foretell of what's going to happen to the entirety of the city of Jerusalem. He says what's going to happen is it's going to be surrounded by armies, and He says, once you see that, do you know that, what that's going to mean? It means your desolation is near. And the siege of Jerusalem, which was under Titus, actually took place over several months, from spring until August um, in 70 AD, and it actually began with a gradual encirclement. So everything Jesus says actually came to pass in 70 AD, and he's warning his disciples. He's warning them. Like, because, again, we have a God who's loving and caring. He cares about us. So, again, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, okay, he's focusing here not on the, the second coming of Christ, but this immediate prophecy here of the city of Jerusalem. The Jewish historian Josephus, he explains that the encircling of Jerusalem took place in stages until finally troops from four legions surrounded the city, but people were still able to escape from the city or bring provisions into it. Finally, to cut off the survivors in the city from any hope, Titus ordered a wall to be built. And each small unit of the Roman armies had a section to which they were assigned, and the units competed with each other for speed. The wall was completed within three days. And after that, Jerusalem's desolation was just a matter of time. And the word desolation here means destruction. It was just a matter of time at this point when it would actually be under destruction. So in verse 21, Jesus goes on to say, he says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart and let not those who are in the country enter her. Do you remember the big misconception that a lot of the Jews had when it, when it came to their Messiah? Their big misconception was that the Messiah would come and free them from their oppression. Remember this? They thought, okay, we have this Messiah who's going to save us, right? And they thought the saving was going to be, okay, we are under the rule of the Romans. The Romans don't treat us right. It's not good, right? We are oppressed, and when the Messiah comes, he's going to just completely destroy them and establish this new city for us, and we are going to reign and rule. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be amazing. You know, it's, it's, it's the way that our flesh thinks. We want God to work, you know, the, the things of our flesh and to work here and now, and Jesus is in it for the long haul, and he's like, no, I'm, I'm not here to do that right now. My, my kingdom is not now. It's to come. It's going to be established later. We saw that, I think, in Luke chapter 19. And so they had this big misconception that when the Messiah came, again, that God would just save them, that any army that surrounded them, that God would just just destroy. But the Christians, those who truly knew the word and knew Christ, understood that Christ came to save them from their sins, right? And so they believed in the very words of Jesus, and because they believed in the very words of Jesus, they were saved. They were redeemed. But those who didn't heed the words of Jesus, they faced desolation and they faced destruction. And here's a good example of how the physical represents the spiritual. Because Jesus warns them that when this encirclement happens from armies, desolation is near. And he says, at that moment, flee. Right? You who are in Judea, flee to the mountains. He's giving them advice. Go, run. This is the only time you should run away. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. So the Christians who were truly Christians, who truly followed and heeded the the advice and the words of Jesus, they were saved, right? They trusted in his words. So when they saw the encirclement happening, what do you think they did? Well, they remembered Jesus said this, let's run. And so they ran. And that meant they were saved from the destruction of what was about to come. But for those who did not heed the words of Jesus and thought, no, this is dumb, this is stupid, what happened to them was they died, right? It's, it's the same goes with us today as Christians, right? If we trust and obey the words of Jesus, we too will not perish. But for those who see it and hear it and think, ah, that's stupid, well, you're going to face the destruction in the same way that literally the Jews face in the time of Jesus, right? When the destruction of Jerusalem happened, well, this is after the time of Jesus, but not too long after his death. So really, there was, I mean, millions. Millions of Jews died. But there were very, very, very few Christians who died in that time. Very few. And so they flee to the mountains. And I think this is one of those prophecies that kind of has two fulfillments. Obviously, we're talking right now about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. You know, the Christians who actually fled um, to Pella, um, there's actually a recording here that when the siege of Jerusalem took place, that the church in Jerusalem received a prophecy that they were to flee to the city. They moved as a group to the city of Pella, just across the Jordan, south of the Sea of Galilee. And again, the rest of the Jews who were still in Jerusalem, they all, they all died. Uh, um, and, you know, obviously Jesus warns them, but they didn't listen. Again, just seeing how the physical translate into the spiritual if we don't listen and heed the words of Jesus, that we too someday, yes, we're all going to die no matter what, a physical death, but we can die a spiritual death. And the, the wrath of God from that is eternity in hell. But God doesn't want that for us. He's warned us, right? He's, he's given us a warning. He's given us instruction. So that's the first part of this prophecy. The, the, the twofold part, the second part of this, is that when Jerusalem is surrounded in the tribulation period, In the seven years after, you know, Christ comes for His church, the Jews will flee to Petra, and Zechariah actually records this in in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 2. He says, "For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the house rifled, uh, the woman, the and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city." And so Zechariah records that instead of Jerusalem being destroyed it will actually be rescued. And when we think of the places in the mountains where the Jews in the tribulation will flee to, will flee to is the ancient city of Petra, and we get that from Isaiah chapter 16. And there's another portion of scripture where Jesus actually um, talks about fleeing as well. And this is in Matthew chapter 24, in verses 15 through 16. It says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So the second fold, you know, instruction here or prophecy is okay. When the abomination of desolation uh, appears, and the abomination of desolation—anybody know who this is? Who who Jesus is referring to, or Daniel is referring to here? Is who, the Antichrist, right? The Antichrist. And so we're going to see in Daniel chapter nine that about this abomination, and the abomination here is the Antichrist who claims to be God, but is not God. It's the spirit of the wicked one, right? It's, it's, it's the Antichrist. And the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world. It's something we need to understand. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, who opposes, speaking of this, uh, the abomination, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, but he's not God. And Jesus says, if you happen to be here at this time and you're living in Jerusalem, run, flee, go, right? Because the abomination of desolation is the Antichrist. And when are we going to see the Antichrist being revealed? Anybody know? Three and a half years into the tribulation, three and a half years. And Daniel tells us about this. And I'll kind of explain this a little bit more in detail in a minute. So in verse 22, It says, for these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. You know, Jesus is is speaking like, you know, like this. The word vengeance, let's understand this really quick. The word vengeance, it carries out the idea of justice, right? Giving of justice. It's the penalty inflicted on wrongdoers. Again, that's what justice is. And so Jesus predicts here, you know, the things that are going to take place, it's going to be terrible destruction, a loss of life. And I think that's why we see in Luke chapter 19 why he weeps over the nation. Why he weeps over the city. Why is that? Well, he knows of what's to come, but at the same time, he loves, right? And the last thing that he wants to see for the city is for this to happen. But because he's a just God, it has to happen. And because he's a loving God, he cares and he cries, but he also warns and he gives instruction. This is how you can be saved. This is how you can be redeemed. And so there is a sense in which the destruction of Jerusalem was kind of God's delayed judgment for the rejection and the death of his son. And then we're going to see a very similar thing happening in the time of tribulation. Again, where vengeance is going to be poured out, right? The wrath of God is going to be poured out. This judgment from the wrath of the lamb, which we see in Revelation chapter 6. God pours out his punishment. So verses 23 through 24, Jesus says, But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, For there will be great distresses in the land and wrath upon this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now there's a lot happening in these verses. The biggest portion of this that we need to look at is the last part in verse twenty four, where it talks about Jerusalem being trampled by Gentiles until the times of Gentiles are fulfilled. Now let's understand this really quick. Who are the Jews? And who are the Gentiles? What's the difference between the two? Because everyone in the world falls into one of those two categories. There's not a third category. (laughs) Thank you. Let's make it as simple as that. We've got Jewish and not Jewish. Gentiles are those who are not of Jewish descent, okay, Who who are not of the nation of Israel. Very simple, right? Very, very simple. Now, what's so special about the Jews? They were God's chosen nation, right? God's chosen people. To do what? Why did he have to do that? Why, why, why choose one nation? Why not choose uh, Saudi Arabia or America? Well, Americans probably would have a lot worse, right? No. But the point is, God used this nation to fulfill a lot of the things that he had to do, in order to bring about the redemption of mankind, right? He used them. In a sense, they're special, (coughs) but they're also, like, not special, right? Because what we see is that Paul says there's neither, you know, poor nor rich nor Jew nor Greek. Like, in Christ, we're all the same, but God used them to bring about his judgment to surrounding nations. God used them to bring blessing to surrounding nations. Like, They are almost like a representation of Christians in the Old Testament. Right? Now, at this time here in verse 24, it says there will be a time where Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles, where, you know, in a sense that Jerusalem won't be run by Jews themselves. He says this will happen until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And I think this is the time between the destruction of Jerusalem, which we saw in 70 A.D., until the day of, of Christ's second coming. So there's this big gap, and we've talked about this before, and I'll explain it again. The destruction of Jerusalem is going to usher in this period of the times of the Gentiles, and that Jerusalem will be under Gentile control until these times are fulfilled. So there is this time clock that has happened. There's um, something that was given to us in Daniel where we get these 70 weeks. You guys remember us studying through this when we, uh, right around Easter time, when we did Palm Sunday. So there's these 70 weeks that Daniel prophesies. In Luke chapter 19, verse 42, it says, if you had known even you, especially in this day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Jesus referring back to this prophecy of Daniel back in Luke chapter 19. And so these 70 weeks, they're a period of 70 groups of seven. Anybody know what 70 times seven is? 490, right? Now the weeks are described, they say weeks, but really what we find out as we study through scripture is it means years. So 70 times seven is 490, which represents 490 years. Where am I going with this? There's a specific purpose, okay? Let's break this down. So Daniel chapter nine, verses 24 through 27. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal upon vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. What's seven plus 62? Huh? 69, right? Which is one... Less than 70, right? Correct. So we have 69 weeks and 70 weeks. There's one week between them. It says, The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined." So the prophecy that is given here of Daniel is built around these 70 weeks. The word week simply means the number seven. So Daniel is talking about groups of seven years. And from the time of a decree, which was made to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, there would be a period of seven of these weeks when the city would be rebuilt, and then another additional 62 weeks or years before the Messiah would appear. So again, a total of 69 weeks But a week represents seven years. So 69 times seven is? Nobody knows that. 483 years. So I know this sounds crazy, but this is how it works out. For Daniel, the Jewish prophet, a year was made up of 360 days. So if we take 360 days times 483 years, we come up with 173,880 days. Now the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, it came from King Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2, on March 5th of 444 B.C. If you then add those 173,000 days and 880 days, you come to the date of March 30th, 33 A.D., which is actually the day that Christ came into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry, which we consider Palm Sunday. So it was all plain. These 69 weeks, right? 483 years. And a year for them was 360 days. We get the exact date of when Christ came into Jerusalem. But remember, there were 70 weeks. Right now, we're only working with 69. But Daniel said after the 69 weeks that the Messiah would be cut off. Well, what happens? The Messiah, what does he do? He dies, right? Yes, he's resurrected again, but he goes into heaven. So we didn't get the 70 weeks yet, right? We did not get the 70 weeks yet. We got cut off at 69. That's exactly what Daniel prophesied. So this is not only speaking of Jesus being crucified for our sins, but that God's time clock for Israel stopped one week short. We're at 69 and not 70. And so as there's this pause until we get to 70, we consider this this the times of the Gentiles here, what Jesus is saying, right? And it's not until the times of the Gentiles is finished that God will once again start his time clock and finish the last 70th week. And a week represents how many years, guys? Seven. Seven. How long is the tribulation? Seven years. That's that last week. That is that 70th week. And once that 70th week has transpired, once those seven years have transpired, again, that is when Jesus Christ comes back the second time, and he comes back with the church, he comes back as a conquering king, and he establishes his kingdom here on earth. We'll be coming with him. There is no fear, there is no being scared of this and that. No, we come with Christ conquering and he sets up his millennial or 1,000-year reign on earth. I hope this makes sense. I know this is a lot to take in. For me, I'm a visual learner, so I would encourage you at some point to go like look at this so you get a better understanding rather than just hearing it. And Paul, he talks about the fullness of the Gentiles another way in Romans chapter 11. He says in verses 25-26, through 26, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of the mystery lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. I think part of what the waiting is, and we don't know how long, we don't, like, here's the thing, we don't know how, like when, technically Christ is coming back to start that 70th week, Right? That's why we always say, well, just be ready for his coming or, or for the rapture, right? Because we don't know when that's going to happen. It could be any day, and we look forward to it, and we expect for it to be any day. But part of this long waiting period, because it's been 2,000 years since this, this gap between the 69th week and the 70th week, I believe God is, is saving people, right? He's, he's redeeming the Gentiles. He's giving opportunity that there will be one day when, you know, the last Gentile puts their trust in Jesus Christ, and then boom, that's it. That's what, what Christ was waiting for. And then here comes the rapture, and here comes the, the restarting of his time clock. And you know, we, we move into the 70th week, the last week of Daniel's 70. And so again, here's that great tribulation, okay, where Christ is gonna, or God's going to pour out his wrath upon the world. So the rapture, again, is going to occur before the tribulation, because God will be working through the Jews and no longer using the Gentile church. If you go back to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, it says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, right, we're talking about the 70th week, the seven years, the great tribulation, he says in the middle of the week, what's the middle of seven years? three and a half years, okay? So that's the middle of the week, three and a half years. He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So this last week, again, is seven years. But three and a half years in, we're going to see the abomination of desolation, or who we call the Antichrist, okay? He's going to form a treaty with Israel. The temple is going to be rebuilt. And he himself will stop sacrifices And declare himself to be God. And this is when Jesus is telling them run for the hills, go. Anyone who has put their faith in Christ in these three and a half years, run, go. So the question here is how is it that Jesus says we don't know the day or the hour of his return, yet we can predict the day from the abomination of desolation? right? Because once the rapture happens, three and a half years, or 1,260 days later, we're going to see the abomination of desolation, and then the same amount of time after he makes his appearance, three and a half years later, 1,260 days later, is when we know Christ is coming back. He's coming back a second time. So how is it we always say, and we see throughout scripture, no one knows the hour or the day of when he comes back, but yet we can predict it just by doing simple math. I said it earlier, but I'll say it again. It's the rapture that's unpredictable and sudden. It's quick. We don't know when it's coming. But his second coming, when he actually appears again, because Christ isn't necessarily going to appear, there's going to be a sound of a trumpet, and, and his church is going to be caught up in the air with him. right? There is not going to be the appearance of Christ. in his second appearance that is when we can predict and we can know exactly when he's coming it's his rapture that we are waiting for and we just expect him to come every day so going back to the verse in verse 24 it says that jerusalem will be trampled by gentiles until the time of the gentiles are fulfilled Um, after the destruction of jerusalem and the dispersion of the jews predicted by jesus in the previous verses There's going to come a long period where Jerusalem will be dominated by Gentiles. And actually, for a thousand years, there was exile. A Jewish state was miraculously established in Israel again back in 1948. And it wasn't until 1968 that Israel controlled Jerusalem again. And one of the things that we see had to happen was the nation of Israel becoming a nation again. And do you know one of the most significant things that happened on our planet, in our history for the nation of Israel to become a nation again, it was one of the most horrific things that ever happened. But God used it for good. Anybody know what it was? It was one of the worst people that I think we would say ever lived. Hitler. Yeah. and the Holocaust. It was because of that that got the attention for the nation of Israel that caused them to become a nation again, which then puts into motion all these things that Jesus is uh, warning us of. So like, we're like, well, why did that happen? Again, it's a horrible thing, but God can use you know, horrible things that mankind does and use them for his good and even for our good. Verse 25. Try to get through this quickly. And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth distresses of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's heart failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And so I think this, there is no double fulfillment here. This is not speaking of 70 A.D. when um, Jerusalem was destroyed because history records none of these things happening. So what we're looking at here is that Jesus is looking at the latter aspects of the fulfillment of his return and the end of the age. And if you read Revelation, specifically chapter 6, 8 through 9, and 15 through 18, you're going to see some of the, the details of what's going to transpire in this time. Right? And it's all going to culminate with Jesus' amazing return. He talks about the signs and the sun, the moon, the stars. Again, these are things that are specific to the tribulation and not the destruction of Jerusalem. Revelation 6 describes it like this. The sun became black as a sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then Jesus even says, like, in that time, men's hearts are going to fail them from fear. Have you ever been, like, so scared that your heart starts to fail you? You pass out? Like, that's what Christ is saying. Like, people are going to pass out because they're so scared. And you're like, well, how is that? Is Jesus even care about us? Yeah, that's why he's warning us. That's why he's giving us a way out. Right? But there has to be justice. And so he says, men's heart fail them from here, it has the idea of your breath being taken away, and not because you saw someone beautiful, but because you just pooped your pants because you're so scared, right? You'll be fainting from fear and the expectation of the things that are coming in the world, and I want to say all this not to scare you, and I don't think Christ says all this to scare us. I don't think he gives us revelation to scare us, but rather what we read here in verses 27, it's the flip side of that says then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory now when these things begin to happen look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near we don't have to fear we have hope we can look up we have this great expectation of redemption he says that is drawing near daniel chapter 7 verse 13 describes it like this he says i saw in the night visions and behold With the clouds of heaven, there came uh, one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Acts chapter 1 says this, And when he had said these things, and they were looking on, he was lifted up, speaking of Jesus, when he was alive in this time, and he came back in his glorified body. And a cloud took him up there out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And he said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus... Who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the second coming of Christ. He's gonna come the same way that he left. He's coming in glory, he's coming in splendor. And Jesus says, Don't be you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be like men's hearts who are failing and fainting. But there'll be the coming of the Son of Man. He's gonna come in power and great glory and lift up your heads, right? What does that symbolize? Like like be of good cheer, be hopeful. You know, don't hang your heads. Don't be scared. Because why? Again, the redemption draws near. So for those who are in the tribulation, who have put their faith in Christ, because we believe and we know through scripture that even though Christ is going res- to rapture his church at the beginning of the tribulation, there will be people who come to faith during the tribulation. But they don't just like, just because they put their faith in Christ in those seven years that they're automatically, you know, like snapped out of the tribulation. No, they continue through the tribulation. And here where Christ is encouraging them, lift up your head because your redemption draws near. This is, again, right after you described, you know, people being fearful. The, the earth, distresses of nations, and perplexity. You know, all of these things. And there's so many people who are going to be so lost in their sin, and it's going to be scary because there's going to be certain judgment that comes upon them. That I won't sugarcoat. That will be scary. That will be fearful for those who have not put their hope and faith in Jesus Christ, because there is sure condemnation that comes, and if you haven't done anything, there's nothing you can do about it. You will face that. However, for us who are God's people, for those who are born again in that time, those who have been saved from their sins, and put their faith in Jesus Christ, when it comes to his return, it will be the greatest event that they have ever seen. And they will look up to Jesus and they will see that their redemption draws near. And so I I want you to be encouraged by that because we have the redemption of Christ. It's hopeful. It's a beautiful thing. And if you think this is all wacky, so be it. That's fine. I, I hope that you won't be here when this comes. But if it does come, Just know and remember the time that we studied through this because Jesus predicted this. Everything that Jesus has predicted in Scripture through his prophets have all come to pass. And like 100%, everything that he has predicted, everything that was predicted about the Messiah who came on earth 2,000 years ago, and remember this, because I'm not just making up fairy tale stories, there is more evidence for the person of Jesus Christ who lived 2,000 years ago than any other person who has ever lived. Do you guys know who the first president of the United States was? Really? How do you guys know? Did you meet him? I think every single one of you would agree that George Washington was the first president of the United States. Right? But how many years ago was that? It was before your time, before my time. Nobody alive today could say, hey, yeah, like I was there. I saw him get, you know, inaugurated. No. No. We know through history, history has documented it, right? In the same sense, history has documented the very person of Jesus Christ more so than any other person. So this is not all wackadoo stuff. This is not like just made up, like this is real history that has happened. And so all the things of Jesus, and I say that because Jesus came, he was the Messiah, and he came at the very time that it was predicted. And for the fact that those prophecies and those predictions came to pass through the person of Jesus Christ, it's, I've told you guys this before, but, but the, the fact that it came about is more, it's more probable for you to win probably every single lottery that there ever is right now on earth for the rest of your life than it would be for all of those prophecies to come to pass. Like, it's absolutely ridiculous. But it just shows that God's God. I mean, who else could do that but God? 100% of, of it came to pass. And I say this, because there are some that still have not been fulfilled yet, because it hasn't gotten to that time yet. And so don't think of this stuff as like, man, this is weird. I don't understand it. If you don't understand it, that's one thing. I I understand that. But if you don't believe it, just know that it's truth, and it will come to pass. It will. But again, this isn't to scare you. This is to provide you hope. A hope because redemption draws near. Redemption's here. Jesus says, look, if you believe in me and you trust in me, what's Romans ten nine? That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you'll be what? You'll be saved. You'll be saved. That's a simple, I mean, dude, it could not be any more simple. That's the most simplest thing you will ever have to do in your life. Everything else is going to be really, really hard, and you are gonna have to do your own work, but Christ has done the work. Put your faith in him. And he says, you will be saved. You'll be redeemed from all these things. And so I hope that encourages you.